Good morning. Lift up a reading from Matthew's Gospel, the 25th chapter, verses 14 through 30. Hear this story afresh. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. At once the one who had received five talents went off and traded with them and made five more. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to them, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Won't you pray with me? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Lord, you call for songs of loudest praise. So teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Lord, here's your mount. I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And so God of grace and God of glory, speak now a word to your people, a word that will comfort and correct, 
a word that will challenge us and send us out to do your will and to follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Well, since I'm a preacher and I have to be honest, let me go ahead and take a moment of personal privilege to say this. I really wish Matthew would just leave us alone. <laughs> I, I really wish he would leave us alone because if you've been here the past few weeks as part of our Lenten series on the parables that prepare us, then you know Matthew has not let us up off the ropes with this talk of the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've been made to listen to these parables and stories, these parables about what happens when we refuse the invitation to be in relationship with God, a relationship, indeed an invitation that requires something of us. We've considered the ways that we have forgotten and ignored and made invisible those who are at the margins and how in doing so we have ignored and made invisible God at work in our midst. Matthew does not play fair. And perhaps that's why his parables are so useful, useful even with their challenges as they prepare us to encounter the great mystery, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. But this morning's parable, this morning's parable is particularly perplexing, not because of the substance, but because of the subject matter. This parable in so many ways is asking and inviting us to meditate on risk. What risks are we willing to take? What risks are we not willing to take? And, and why are we not willing to take them? And, and what happens if our unwillingness to take risks are grounded in our inability and an unwillingness to trust God? Ouch goes right there. There is much in this parable. There's much for us to unpack, but today I want to sit with the idea of risk, for it is near to us. It's at the forefront of our minds as so many of our news feeds have been shaped around and indeed are echoing the uncertainty underlying our present financial climate. To be sure, so many of the stories that I've read and indeed the podcasts I've listened to in the past few weeks have hearkened back to the days of 2008, invoking notions of moral hazard, risk management, stress tests, and all the ways we try to mitigate risk and the impact and influence it has in our lives. And yet this parable this parable presents itself to us this morning as an invitation to deal with this uncomfortable subject matter through an uncomfortable story. There's a property owner, a head of household, or, or master, as this text calls them, and there we go. Already a bit of discomfort given the language being used. This master decides to set out on a journey and before setting out entrusts their workers, their servants, their slaves. There goes that uncomfortable language again. 
This master entrusts his servants with his property, his talents, his money, and of course everyone is comfortable talking about money. And not only does this master entrust them with his wealth, but he distributes to each of them a different amount based on, their under, on his understanding of their ability to handle it. And then he finally sets off. He sets off and he's gone for a long time. We aren't certain how long, but the text gives us a clue that it had to be long enough for him to expect a non-significant amount of interest to be earned on funds if they had been deposited into a bank. So this master leaves for a long time, and when he comes back, without having given his servants any prior instructions without having communicated any expectations to them, he comes back with an unspoken expectation that what he entrusted to them would be multiplied. And two of the three servants do just that. They multiply what they had been entrusted with. But that third servant, that third servant, out of fear and angst and assumption made about the master and what the master would do if they failed, they buried the money, hid it away so as to not risk losing it. And the response of the master, as we see in the text, to the actions of this servant is not what we might expect. For there's no forgiveness in this text. Even as we know we belong to a God whose forgiveness reaches us even in the depths of our shame. The master's response in this text is not grace, Even as we know we belong to a God whose grace continues to outpace every step of our lives. The master's response in this text is not one of love, even as we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we belong to the one who is love with flesh on. No, the response of this master is to take what little this worker has and give it to the one who has more and still to cast them out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I really wish Matthew would leave us alone. And yet, This parable prepares us, even if it's through our discomfort. And the first way I believe it prepares us this morning is by making us confront our risky actions. Believe this text turns on five words, each according to his ability. That is the the measure that the master uses in order to determine at what level and in what proportion he would distribute his property. To one he gave five, to another two, and to the final he gave one each according to his ability. Now for all the ways we may question the master's actions, question the master's motives for all the discomfort we may have with the master's business practices and maybe even the fact that the master is a master in the first place, there is something to be said about the fact that he understands full well the ability and potential of each of the servants that he entrusts his property to. To the one given five, there is no doubt about their ability to handle five and possibly more. 
to the one given to, there is complete confidence that they'd be able to manage well the two. And to the one given a single talent, there is no uncertainty or question concerning their ability to manage the one talent they'd been given. And so that story unfolds where the one given five goes and makes five more, the one given two goes and makes two more, but the one given one talent, the servant entrusted with one talent, for some reason doesn't believe he can handle it, doesn't believe he can manage it, doesn't believe he can steward it, doesn't believe that he can do what his two fellow servants are doing, and motivated by both insecurity and fear, buries what he's been entrusted with in the hopes that if he can just maintain good enough, he can get by. And perhaps that sounds like your story, that somehow insecurity and fear, uncertainty and and doubt have conspired to convince you that getting by is good enough. Perhaps you've been seduced into thinking that you really aren't equipped, that you really aren't smart enough, aren't capable enough, aren't called enough to do what God knows you can do. Perhaps your story intersects with this servant's story and you've found yourself burying your talents, burying your dreams, burying your hopes, burying what you once expected out of life because somehow you don't think you can accomplish it. Or, or maybe you've been paralyzed by the possibility of potential loss. Or perhaps even more painfully, you've been paralyzed by the promise of your own potential to do what seems impossible. Beloved, both the potential for loss And the potential within ourselves can be paralyzing. Consider the servant again. It's not as if he doesn't see his fellow servants day in and day out taking the risk to use the property that they've been entrusted with. The text tells us that the master is gone for a long time. And while we don't know precisely what the one with five and the one with two did to make five more and two more, what I can guarantee you is that while they were making more of what they had been entrusted with, there were losses. Whenever, whenever you take the risk to use what God has entrusted you with, whenever you take the risk to be faithful and lean into the mystery of God, to confront the unsettling reality that though we belong to God, our lives are still impacted by the whims of the unexpected. Whenever you decide to take the risk of faith, there will be losses. Yeah, sorry to break it to you. It won't always go according to plan. See, I can imagine the one with five talents went out with five on the first day and he probably came back with four. But he went on back out on the second day and he might have came back out with six and then around the third week he could have had 12 and somewhere around the seventh year he could have had 15. But I can imagine that maybe the crops failed one year. 
or a storm came through and he was left with one, maybe even none. But I don't know what happened, but whatever happened, I know there were losses. And yet the servant kept showing The servant kept taking the risk because he trusted that he was capable of handling what God had entrusted to him. And beloved, if God has entrusted you with something, then you ought to trust that God believes you are fully capable of handling it. That brings up another pesky question that because I'm up here and you're in the pews, I get to ask you. What is it that you're not trusting God with? What is it that you don't believe God has fully equipped you to handle? Is it your marriage? Your children? Maybe it's where you find yourself in your career. Or the uncertainty of navigating retirement or or navigating retirement now that your partner is no longer with you? What what is it that you have a hard time trusting God with? The next stage in your education. The present demands life is making of your faith right now. What is it that you don't trust that God has equipped you for? Why do you believe it? That question there. Why do you believe it? Why do you believe that brings us to another way that this parable prepares us? For it prepares us by exposing our risky assumptions. Turn your attention back to this third servant who, when the master returned from their long journey and after the one with five brings ten and the one with two brings four, the servant with the single talent brings that one talent to present to the master saying, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting where you do not sow and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your money in the ground. See here. Here is what's yours. There are so many things and so many ways to read this text. So many ways we can read into the master's character. And indeed, this text is rich and challenges us to consider, for instance, if in fact we should be reading the master alongside our understanding of Jesus Christ or of God. And yet I think This parable also prepares us. It prepares us by exposing the fact that we, like the servant, are prone to making risky assumptions. One way to read this parable is to unpack the assumptions that the servant makes about the master, assumptions about how the master will react, assumptions about how the master will respond, assumptions about how the master will will receive him based on the assumptions about how the master engages in business. See, we often make assumptions ourselves, assumptions about God, and we make them to feel more comfortable about the decisions that we make or the decisions that we don't make. And this parable prepares us by exposing the fact that our assumptions about God 
about who God is and what God does, assumptions about God's actions and how we believe God doles out justice and what we secretly desire God to do with those who don't do things the way we think are right, this parable exposes us and exposes the fact that those assumptions and the fear behind them are always, always a barrier to faith. It's the servant's assumptions about who the master is and how the master acts coupled with his own fears and insecurities that drive him to forsake risk in search of a false sense of security. Now hear me, beloved. I am not anti-fear. Fear can indeed be useful. And contrary to popular belief, fear is not the enemy of faith. However, when fear drives us to seek a false sense of security, when fear convinces us of the lie that we actually can control it all, if we just do all the right things, then we find ourselves less invested in practicing faith or of taking the risks of faith and more concerned about what we can foresee and control. We become concerned with checking all the boxes, doing all the right things, of following proven formulas that will make sure that we minimize our risks to minimize our losses. And yet our formulas will always fail. They may hold up for a while, but they will ultimately falter. That's what Kate Bowler points towards. Kate Bowler is the best-selling author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's a great title, isn't it? See, Kate, she's a professor at Duke University. When she was 35, after having her first child, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. A woman who, after seemingly having done everything right, having checked all the boxes, having pieced her life together appropriately, avoided the risks, was confronted with a loss. A loss that threatened to crush her. And yet Kate, in talking about formulas, understands intimately the fragility of the formulas we use. The formulas we use to mask the assumptions that we make about God and about our lives. Assumptions that are rooted in a false and unhelpful narrative authored by unchecked fear. This is what Kate says. That is the problem, I suppose. That's the problem with formulas. They are generic. But there is nothing generic about a human life. There is no life in general, every single day has been a collection of trivial details, little intimacies and jokes and screw-ups and realizations. My problems can't be solved by those formulas, those cliches, when my life was never generic to begin with. There is no life in general. Life is not generic. 
Life will require us to engage in risks. And indeed, God is calling us to the risk of faith to go where God is leading, to do what God is calling us to do, to accept the invitation to journey with God, even though we know it will lead us to the cross. We take that risk in the sure and certain hope that resurrection is coming even as we have to wait for it to be fulfilled. Beloved, put down the formulas. Check your assumptions. What is it that you have begun to believe about God that is getting in the way of your faith? But finally, this parable prepares us by reminding us that our inability to take risky actions and the false logic of our risky assumptions are attached to risky aftermaths. Again, let me say, because I can't say it enough, I really wish Matthew would leave us alone. And allow me to put my bias forefront and confess I don't really care much for Matthew's language about outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yet the aftermath of our risky assumptions and our inability to take risky actions is quite clear. Instead of entering into the joy of the master, we find ourselves cast out into the outer darkness where we weep and gnash our teeth. Now, whether you believe in a literal heaven or hell, whether you read this parable with an eye toward the apocalyptic and the eschaton, what this parable prepares us to understand is that a failure to lean into how God is calling us to live faithfully means that we will always, always miss out on the joy stored up for each of us. It means we will always miss out on the peace that is laid up for us in heaven. It means that we will miss out on the hope that is promised to each of us, the grace that is given freely to each of us, the mercy that meets each of us with every morning. All of it is ours to enter into through the power and promise, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it is all ours to miss out on. It's all ours to miss out on if we don't take the risk. And missing out on that opportunity, yeah, I might gnash my teeth. I might weep. Everything around me may grow suddenly so much more dark. Of all the risks we are afraid to take, may we not be afraid to take the risk of faith, where there is always joy on the other side, no matter the losses we may sustain. So moral hazard, risk management, risk aversion. So much of our world is shaped around mitigating risk, and yet there is no life without risk. Indeed, there is no life with God that does not require a risk. The risk to trust that God has indeed equipped us with what we need to handle what God has entrusted us with. The risk to challenge our faulty assumptions about God and the fears 
that drive them, and the risk to remain faithful even in the face of losses. For the aftermath does not have to be the outer darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The aftermath can be what God promises, joy unspeakable. Joy that this old world and its risk aversion can't give and thanks be to God can never take away.